0: From the studios of KPCW in Park City, this is The Mountain Life, Healthy Living in the Wasatch. I'm David Windsor, and this morning we have fun talking Thanksgiving food and wine with Joe Saladega founder and owner of the Savory Kitchen, and Kirsten Fox, headmistress of the Fox School of Wine. We certainly always enjoy looking forward to this annual episode in which we explore some of the finer points of Thanksgiving. We ask questions about mashed potatoes that we've never even understood before. What's the difference between stuffing and dressing for the turkey anyways? Is it okay to serve a Spanish wine for our American tradition, and why? How does chef Joe Saladega brine a turkey? And if apple pie is his choice of dessert, How does he make it irresistible? Stay with us. We'll be right back after these messages.
1: Welcome back to The Mountain Life. I'm Lynn Ware Peak, And I'm David Windsor. Well, it's that time again, really one of our favorite episodes of the entire year when we talk about Thanksgiving Day tomorrow, food and wine. And we're joined by Savory Kitchen's founder, owner, and chef, Joe Saladega. And later on, we'll be joined by Kirsten Fox of the Fox School of Wine. Joe is here to tell us about some new twists on some old favorites and just the traditions that brings Thanksgiving such meaning. Joe, welcome to the Mountain Life. It's great to have you back.
2: Thank you so much. I can't even, I can't even Count the years that we've been doing this in
1: a row. I know. It's so much fun, and it makes you realize how years actually accelerate as you get older because it seems like we just were talking about this, you know, last month.
2: It feels that way, and my back hurts. <laughs> That's
1: <right. laughs> Ditto. Also showing the progression of the years. Okay. Okay. Well... Each year we sort of go through the traditional dishes, and it really never gets old, I feel like, talking about how we can be better with mashed potatoes or maybe how we bring a new twist to them. Why is that?
2: Because it's it's the comfort food that everyone loves. And I always say salt and cream and sour cream and butter. And all the fatness that goes into wonderful great mashed potatoes, but you know there are also other things to do. You don't need to totally dork out on your mashed potatoes and make them totally unhealthy. Uh, you could do a twist on, say, sweet potatoes and maybe run them through a spiral cutter. Uh, is anyone familiar with a spiral Ooh, cutter? No, only imagine like. Zucchini or something? Correct. My wife would call it a zoodler. Zoodler. There you go. Drives me nuts. (laughs) Uh, But yes, a spiral cutter. Um, So if you run a sweet potato through a spiral cutter, you could cook those up in a saute pan with some brown butter uh, and some sage and then serve them in a nest on a plate. And that's a fun little presentation. Help me
0: understand brown butter really quick.
2: Okay, so that's when you cook your butter. You give it a little more of a robust flavor. Uh, Getting a brown color to it brings out the nuttiness. And, um, yeah, you cook it in that, and then you've got a wonderful flavored sweet potato that is seasoned with sage, a little salt and pepper, light, easy. Maybe add some garlic for some fun.
0: Oh, man, your family's different than mine. If you can replace mashed potatoes with spiral sweet potatoes.
2: Uh, I wouldn't replace them. I would also serve them because everyone (laughs) wants the mashed potato. And what I will be adding to my mashed potatoes this year, um, nothing crazy, but I like to get Old Amsterdam. Uh, By the way, I am no way affiliated with this business or company, and they do not pay me. Uh, Old Amsterdam Aged Gouda. It's a... uh, Aged Gouda that has a slight smoky flavor, um, but it's uh, hard cheese. It'll melt nicely in the mashed potato. You don't need to put a ton of it in, but it'll add a nice depth to the mashed potato.
0: Interesting.
2: Another fun thing is if you wanted to maybe puree up some beets, roast beets, puree them. And now you've got a nice purple (laughs) hue, yes, to your mashed potato. Great idea. Uh Uh-huh. And also extra flavor and nutrients. I love this idea. Isn't it wonderful?
0: It is. (laughs) And so as you're talking about these sweet potatoes and mashed potatoes, and I can't help but think about the butter, and you said you don't want to totally make it totally unhealthy, but is there a point where there's too much butter? Obviously, for the health component, yes, but when you're cooking, can you put too much butter in a pan that actually takes away flavor from the actual dish you're cooking?
2: Some would say yes, I would say no. <laughs> I love your answer better. <laughs> uh, the Less is more, I think. You can always add more and take some away. Somebody can add, or you can always add more, but not take away. Uh, so if somebody wants more butter in their mashed potatoes, You have butter on the table, and they can add it to it. I did that as a kid. I'd make a mound of mashed potatoes, put a well in it, and throw a pat of butter in there, and, you know, it would be like a volcano. And (laughs) it would be wonderful. Um, But not so much as I get in my older days and would like my waist to stay the same size. Um, But, you know.
1: So I have a question. I, I grew up in Idaho, and my father was a potato broker. Therefore... I hated potatoes growing up, but I think it's because I was exposed to so many russet potatoes. For sure. And so help us out with, you know, now when I make mashed potatoes, I usually go to a red potato, but help me out there. I I,
2: do like red potato, but I find them waxy. And they, if you over mix them or mash them, they get more gummy quicker, uh, like elastic like. Um, However, a Yukon Gold is my go-to. Good to I know. I think it's got a great buttery flavor without the butter. Um, it's got a better texture, and, you know, you might pay a little more at the grocery, but it's worth it.
1: Yeah, it's either 16 cents or 19 cents exactly. for a potato. 100%. <laughs> That's right. Good. Okay. Well, not to fixate on potatoes, we we do we can expand this conversation to and, stuffing versus so, dressing.
2: Oh, let's do that. The difference of the two. Uh, what is the difference between stuffing and dressing?
0: I would say that the dressing is the preparation, where the stuffing is the post meal. I don't. Fair guess. Something about
1: something about the innards. Correct. Versus not having Uh, the
2: innards. The uh, stuffing would be um, stuffed into the bird and cooked inside the bird. Uh, Dressing is um, served on the side. So you prepare the stuffing. I'm throwing up quotation marks. What everyone would call stuffing. um, And that is technically dressing. Uh, It is not stuffing unless it goes into the bird.
1: Okay. But didn't we all sort of get scared about bacteria and doing it the wrong way? So we stopped stuffing.
2: So with the as I've probably talked about for the last five plus years, uh, we do a a self-served catering um, dinner for Thanksgiving. We're closed on Thanksgiving day and Christmas day, because I feel like that's a day to spend with your family. And what we uh, offer to our clients is a prepared meal in which all of your sides are fully cooked and ready to go. They shuffle through the oven, uh, but your turkey, it, turkey prime rib or um, say a uh, standing rib roast or a uh, pork loin is all prepared ready to go into your oven with a instant read thermometer and basically we give you a timeline temperatures how to pop everything in your oven mess free super easy we do not put the stuffing into the bird due to the fact that it can create bacteria. If you don't cook the bird to the right temperature, the center is not up to 165, it could create an issue. Um, have I ever seen that happen? No, but I don't want to see it happen on my watch with my clients, so we serve it separately.
0: So are you saying that there's a specific brand that has the name stuffing in it that's actually not stuffing, Well, technically I'm- speaking, because it hasn't been in... S- stuffed into the bird correct
2: sure yes okay i didn't know that that's a fun fact but maybe they just i mean they can call it stuffing if they or they can call (laughs) themselves stuffing they've done well Uh, fair enough so what i was thinking with uh if you wanted to serve stuffing and not dressing and you didn't want to put it in your bird what if you made little cups of pancetta Mm -hmm. in a uh you slice your pancetta super thin put it into a um Muffin tin, and you make little cups, and then you put your stuffing into that, and bake them off that way. Mm. That'd be a nice little side dish, self-contained, easy to pick up. And this year we're doing a chorizo cornbread stuffing with apples. Yum. Okay, yes. are you
1: go- you're not going to then put the that on pancetta, or you are? I am. Oh, okay. Talk. Double the pig, double the pleasure. <laughs> 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 That's always my mantra. I will say that when it's my assignment to do stuffing, I'm, I'm one of those people that has some sort of cognitive issue with following a recipe, and so I try to be as creative as I can. And I am no Joe Saladega when it comes to cooking, let's just put it that way. However, I've had the most compliments on anything i've ever cooked on stuffing when i just start throwing stuff in that's the key to cooking oh oh okay but let's talk about chorizo cornbread okay what else do you put in it to make it dressing or stuffing
2: um so we're gonna do um we will not do our we make our chorizo um filling so it's not stuffed into casing um Stuffed into casing. Uh, so we'll cook that up um, loose like a normal sausage um, and then add that to our cornbread that we break up, dried out. Uh, we will add some focaccia bread, mm-hmm. of course, milk, eggs, stock, and aromatics such as maybe some garlic, thyme, sage, and parsley.
0: All this into a muffin tin?
2: No, this is to make the stuffing.
0: Oh, excuse me. I thought we were on the cornbread still.
2: I mean dressing.
0: (laughs) So (laughs) I feel like there's always like a national food day. Like this is the national donut day or this, this theme is in season. Does it come around in your world when it comes to Thanksgiving? Are there, are there foods that are popular this time of year? This is what's hot. This is what the new trend is as far as Thanksgiving of this season.
2: Uh, I would say Thanksgiving, most people, most of my clients like to go mostly traditional. Um, We try to throw a couple curveballs in there, uh, but most likely if they want to have a holiday meal, they're thinking full traditional. Um, On the flip side... If they don't want traditional, they're gonna just ask us to get creative and do a completely different menu, which we're more than happy to do at any given time. We do custom stuff every day.
1: It's so much fun. I don't know if you remember this but from last year, but we taped our Thanksgiving program ahead of time because we were going to be in Mexico for Thanksgiving. Oh yeah. And we actually stopped in like San Antonio, Texas. We drove this time to purchase our Whole Foods. You know, it's it's the last Whole Foods before you hit the border. And we got our organic turkey and everything. And then we got down to Mexico, and we found that there was a plethora of ingredients that we could have used, including pavo, you know, turkey. Oh, yeah. And maybe it wasn't, you know, Whole Foods organic turkey or, or whatever, but maybe it was. And it was so much fun to get, you know, squash and tomatillos and, really mix it up for a mexican themed yet traditional thanksgiving dinner
2: i would have probably taken a cue from like a cajun style and maybe i would have used my the back burner of my brain and said well i know what i like to do cajun wise And I know how close that is to the border and now I've got all these wonderful chilies and what can I do what kind of rub can I make to um rub that turkey with and then roast it that way
1: oh Oh, great thought talk more about that
2: uh well I was actually that wasn't even on my mind of course the Cajun turkeys oh it's like a turducken everyone I want a turducken that that would be your you're going back to your last question of the trends, which isn't really a trend anymore because that was probably 30 years ago when Amaro Lagasse, I think, was making turduckins, and I think you can still buy them and have them shipped to you for some ungodly amount of money. And I have made one from scratch, and it's not fun.
1: Wait, you should, for our listeners, to tell us what so a, a turducken, turducken is. And
2: for is me, a, please. Oh, for sure. A uh, turducken is turkey, chicken, duck... And I believe chorizo, all breasts rolled and roasted together. So, Is this one inside pre-packaged? the other. Is this uh, pre packaged? Pre packaged by somebody that made it, for Correct. sure. Correct, yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yes. Yes, sir. Okay. Uh, however, um, so what we would do is we'd take a, we would, you know, season and brine our turkey breast, and then we'd throw chicken breasts on there. Then we would do uh, um, duck breast and then chorizo, and then I believe we'd put in some pesto and some other aromatics and, and flavors and roll it, truss it, sear it, cook it. Interesting. What about the and it tastes really good. It's just a lot of work. I've never heard of it. And I like to have fun on Thanksgiving, not work so much.
0: Well, I feel like if you're having fun in what you actually work in doing, then you know you're in the right place doing it.
2: That is true, uh, uh, for sure. But there are some days that you just don't want to do that part. Of course, and the cleanup—the cleanup cleanup is the part. Well, I feel like as the chef, you kind of
0: get to skirt that issue, maybe. Sometimes. 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 What about the traditional dishes that we all have? Do you have that guilty pleasure of the dish that you've had as a child growing up and the sweet potatoes with marshmallows or the green bean casserole or the, are the traditional things that you have to have on your, on your plate?
2: We have all of those on our savory kitchen menu. Uh, however, my only, the only necessary thing I have to have is the mashed potato for me and turkey and gravy. Those are the three keys. Brussels sprouts, for sure. I love Brussels sprouts. That's a love or hate relationship, I think, with most people. Um, This year, I think we're going to do a Brussels sprout hash. That would be shaved Brussels sprouts with um, fingerling potatoes, bacon, juniper berries, something like that. Can I
0: ask you about Brussels sprouts really quick?
2: Yeah. The hardest part for
0: me with Brussels sprouts is getting that... the Having that char on it from the skillet or whatever you're, but also the the softness. They're usually. Ah uh, yes. And so, are you are you blanching them in the beginning? That's a great question. Are you boiling them? How I you?
2: blanch them first for sure. Uh, I have um, employees, friends, family that will only roast straight from raw. Um, however, I find that if you give them a quick blanch, uh, you and then get them into the oven, blanch cold, one it will keep the color really nice, and then two, when you eat them and you bite into it, you, you have the, the crispy outside but a softer inside. The texture is just much more palatable for sure.
1: It's really interesting about Brussels sprouts. Every restaurant I feel now in this country has Brussels sprouts on the menu in some fashion. hundred percent. Yeah.
2: I find this to be completely strange and weird because so many people hated Brussels sprouts for Growing so many up, years. Right. Uh-huh.
1: And actually a couple of years ago I, I was in Spain visiting a friend, a Spanish friend, and I, I told him about this Brussels sprouts, you know, extravaganza here in, in the country, in this country. And he said, Oh, Bruselas? And I said, Yeah, yeah. And he said, Really? Why? because
2: he finds them to be garbage I'm sure and it's funny uh, we actually tried growing them uh, a couple times because our our climate's actually good for it Um, however we were never successful because aphids tend to take them over and it's bad news but I would love to be able to grow my own because
1: I love them personally what do you shave them with, a little mandolin huh? and your knuckles? Yeah,
2: your- <laughs> I leave my knuckles out. Uh, my son would add fingertips for sure, um, but I tend to leave the flesh out for sure. i got to stay
0: on this topic for a second. So yeah. you blanch it, and then you put it in, because where I've gone wrong is a skillet. So And for, so, sorry, really quick, I want to, yeah. so are you putting it with butter, and then what kind of seasoning are you putting in when you put it in the oven?
2: two things one if i blanch and then i'm gonna roast them i'm gonna go at high heat i'm gonna do it with a convection oven probably at 450 so i'll get a nice um char on them however uh i would skip the skillet unless i'm doing like the hash when i do the hash they're going to be shaved and i will do those 100 percent in the skillet and i'll just i'll go by feel and look um and then to answer your question on flavor, uh, I use, personally, bacon fat. Bacon fat is my go-to over butter uh, for cooking in general because most people like bacon, or a lot of our population likes mm. bacon, and it's just, it adds nice, smoky, deep flavor to it, and I really enjoy it.
1: The bottom line about Brussels sprouts, when you get them in the restaurant... They're usually deep-fried, right? Oh,
2: yeah. I would not. Yeah. I won't throw any restaurant names under, but I am <laughs> sure that I've eaten deep-fried Brussels.
1: Which is another reason, David, that you're like, They're, they were so crispy and wonderful and tender on the inside at that restaurant. But why can't I do it that way?
2: Hence why you need the 450 on the oven. Got it. <laughs> and bacon fat.
1: We have We consume a ton of coconut milk in our house, mostly... I guess to get some calories and some flavor when you're not really doing dairy. How can I in, how can I integrate coconut milk, the kind in the can, you know, with with something great? You know, I don't want to put it in everything. What where do I find it to really fit the best?
2: Uh you could substitute that in your mashed potatoes. Oh. I w- I wouldn't think twice about doing that. Um We've done it in the past. We have a lot of, we deal with a lot of dairy-free clients. uh, So we will use a good bit of coconut milk or almond milk, depending on the application. Almond milk, we will tend to stay away from due to nut allergies, but uh, coconut milk works really well for that. We actually have used, I want to say coconut cream Mm -hmm. uh, to make
1: a dairy-free chocolate mousse. Ooh, yum. That worked really well. That sounds great. Mm-hmm. Now we skirted a little bit around the turkey by talking about the tur- what's it called? Turducken. Turducken. Yes. But we didn't really get into the turkey turkey. Mm. How are you how are you doing it? Are you deep frying it? Are you um So last year it? I'm pretty sure we deep fried one. I think we deep
2: fried one and roasted and we did two. This year, I presume we will still, because we're gonna go through, I of course do a uh, Misfits Thanksgiving in yeah. which we invite a bunch of people to our home, that don't have somewhere to go. Uh, and in that fact, we'll need a couple turkeys and I believe we will smoke one this year. I haven't smoked one in a while and I feel like it needs to happen. Uh, we'll, we will use cherry wood most likely. I will brine it. I will still prepare it much like we do in which we put all that nice compound butter under the skin and we will slow smoke it probably at 225 degrees for as long as it takes, which will be a nice long time, but it'll be wonderful.
1: It's interesting how often, David, that Joe talks about all these different types of butters. Like there's brown butter, there's compound butter. You know, you just talk it just rolls off the tongue and we don't really know what that is right? So compound <laughs> butter
2: is a butter that has um, I, I'll just say compounded flavors. so uh, I'm going to do a sage butter uh, sage thyme butter with garlic and it'll be whipped together with those uh, the herbs and and spices and then it'll be put at room temperature underneath the skin.
0: Well, Joe, there's one thing about you, and the listener can't see it, but you're so passionate about this. You, your eyes light up and you get really excited about a particular dish or a moment that we're talking about when it comes to food. It's I'm thinking about eating it. I, me too. I, this has been fantastic. I, but I don't want to skirt the issue of, des, of dessert.
2: I don't either, but before we get to that, I've totally let you down multiple years talking about brine. And I think oh. most people know about a brine. And a basic brine on a turkey, I think, is key. And if s- most people are probably going to cook up to a 12-pound turkey for their families, some will cook more. So I'm going to give you a really quick ratio for a fast brine, which would be uh, one cup of kosher salt, half cup of sugar to a half gallon of water, I think, and... Um, And then you're going to add aromatics, which will be your garlic, your thyme, your parsley, your uh, peppercorns, um, and possibly some lemon zest. I will also substitute some of the water with a apple cider because apple cider tastes good and why not? Um, And then you're going to want to submerge that whole turkey for 24 hours minimum because it's got bone in it so it's going to take a minute to get it totally brined and this is going to keep your turkey juicy so that when you have somebody that might not know how to cook it if they overcook it a little bit it's not going to matter it's still going to taste really good and be really juicy Um, with that also being said something that I was reading about and I haven't even thought about fried turkey what about air fried turkey breast oh
0: is there one big enough to accommodate
2: Oh, Oh, 100% there's air fryers big enough. Whether or not somebody has one on their tabletop at home, I do not know. But there are air fryers big Mine's enough for Mine's sure. definitely not. <laughs> if you're doing dinner for four or eight, I'm sure your home one would do a turkey breast. And how would you do that? Um, I would do a brine and yeah. then give it a rub, uh, like nice dry rub to, uh, your liking. A Cajun dry rub would be really nice. And then, um, deep fry or air fry it and call it a day.
1: Mm. Okay. Let's indulge David on the desserts. Okay. So I was, okay. And me too. So <laughs>
2: apple pie, always a Thanksgiving thing for sure. Um, We've been doing for a few years now a um, baked apple. It's a peeled apple that we core out, and then we fill the core of the apple with um, a caramel and chocolate uh, filling, and we wrap that with puff pastry, egg wash it, top it with a crisp, like an apple crisp topping, and then pop it in the oven. And it's like your personal apple what? pie. Yes, it just blew your mind, didn't it? How long do you cook that for? Uh, they're going to take probably 45-ish minutes. And
0: what's the texture on it? Uh, divine. <laughs>
2: <laughs> 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 yeah. Sounds amazing. And actually, uh, we started doing them in half because a whole... Apple with puff pastry is actually a lot to eat with some ice cream. Um, And if you cut it in half, uh, it actually works out really well for people um, as a personal serving. And then what about a pumpkin cheesecake? That's a little bit different. I'm not a big pumpkin pie guy. And it might be blasphemy for Thanksgiving and all, but that's not my go-to. So I would say a pumpkin cheesecake with a ginger snap crust. Ooh. Great. That sounds really nice. Uh, and then because I pecan pie is a must, um, but I also personally, it's not my go-to. I'm an apple pie guy if I have to go pie. So I'm going to say instead of a pecan pie, a pecan chocolate chip bar. So kind of like a chocolate
1: chip cookie, but pecan chocolate chip bar. Oh, that sounds... Great. Well, Joe, we're just about out of time. Can you give us a real brief overview of what's going on at Savory Kitchens? Kitchen, Savory Kitchen.
2: Oh, a brief overview. So um, every day is, is different because we're a catering business, except for we have Soaring Wings as a, um, a school lunch client. Oh, wow. Yes. Those kids eat really well and they will be eating a Thanksgiving meal right before their break. Um, as well as we do adventure lunches for our local adventure outlets. And then our basic or our go-to business is a hundred percent, uh, in-home dinner parties, uh, sit down dinners for, you know, two to 2000 is really the The wheelhouse numbers we will do anything anyone wants. Uh, We're happy to get creative. We're happy to recreate. We've recreated wedding uh, cakes for people's anniversaries. Wow. So it just depends on what the party is. In fact, we've got a big wedding anniversary coming up.
1: That's great. Mm -hmm. Well, we're so thrilled that you could come back and join us again for... This Thanksgiving dinner talk, it's a lot of fun. Thank you.
2: Pleasure is mine. Can't wait to do it
1: again. We should make this a weekly thing and just talk food. We probably should. Mm -hmm. Joe Saladega, Savory Kitchen. Thank you so much. Thank you.
0: Welcome back to The Mountain Life. I'm David Windsor.
1: And I'm Lynn Ware Peak. Now
0: that we've been through talking about food for the big Thanksgiving day tomorrow, let's be grateful that there's also wine. And joining us to talk about wine and how to pair it with our favorite dishes is headmistress for the Fox School of Wine, Kirsten Fox. Kirsten, welcome to Mountain Life.
3: Thank you, David. Hello, Lynn. Hi. Well,
0: man, there's been so many great conversations about the food we've been preparing for coming up tomorrow, and obviously everyone has their libations of choice that they like to bring along with those dishes, wine being probably the top one. And right in front of us, full disclosure, we have a little bit of wine right here that we are going to be sampling throughout the episode. And my first thought on this is, is it's a red wine and I've always been under the impression that you want to pair something like a poultry dish with a white wine can you explain what you think the red wine would pair with that better
3: yeah that's a great question and a good place to start so when you think about a dish and you've got let's talk about the traditional Thanksgiving dinner you've got your turkey yes in fact that turkey is very low in fat and also very um, simple in its tastes. It doesn't have a lot of complexity in itself. And so you're right. You wouldn't want to put a red wine, and particularly because it's not about necessarily the color. It's about the tannin in the wet red wine. So tannin is that grippy compound that you get into your mouth from a red wine. And the tannin is, we, I call it, fat and tannin are friends because tannin um, needs fat in your mouth to bind to it otherwise it starts binding to your saliva and you end up with this totally parched dry mouth without any fat in it and turkey just doesn't have the fat but guess what on the rest of your plate you've got the buttery mashed potatoes you've got the stuffing you might have sausage in the stuffing Um, so the problem with Thanksgiving dinner for any kind of sommelier is it's got these really really opposite ends of the spectrum of fat so um, what I tend to go with is a red wine that has low tannins in it. And we've talked about that in other um, some of the other ones I've recommended in other sessions, like Pinot Noir, for example. It's a very common one to pair with Thanksgiving dinner. Does that make sense? Absolutely. Yeah. yeah.
0: I want to circle back yeah. on off subject about tannins because I've never done really well with red wine. I, I've always been under the belief that the tannins are what keep me up at night. And so when I drink red wine, if I have more than two glasses, I'll be up at 1 a.m. wide awake. Is there something in the tannins that are allowing that to happen? One. And two, I've heard about these charcoal packets and stuff. Is that something you can put into your wine to reduce the tannins?
3: So first I'll just tell you it's not the tannins that are keeping you up. It is um, typically. Some people have an An allergic reaction or a reaction to the histamines in the wine, red wine and in the grapes and skins and in the skins and seeds and such there are histamines and so red wine juice sits on the skins much longer than white wine juice so you can get you get more histamines in the wine and so the up at night is typically associated with your body your metabolism trying to digest the wine itself, and women don't have uh, um, the enzyme as much of the enzyme in their bodies. Whether they're big women, small women, it doesn't matter. As men, men tend to have more ends. This of an enzyme that helps digest the liquor, which is why you hear if you hear about red wine being good for your heart. It recommends one glass of wine, that's, that's a Utah pour, five ounces, not a home pour, like at my house. A home pour, 12 ounces. Yes. <laughs> and men, too, two glasses, and it's not because of their size, it's because of the enzyme they have more of to help digest. So you may not, perhaps in your body, have the same amount of the enzyme that some other male does. So anyway, that's usually what is keeping you up at night. That is very interesting. I have had
1: that same issue. I think a lot of people do. And my issue, the higher altitude I go, the worse it is. So my red wine consumption is now limited to when I'm pretty much at sea level. And I don't have as much of a problem. But also I thought it was that, you know, you're converting to sugar and then sugar kind of wakes you up in the middle of the night if alcohol turns to sugar. But maybe it's sort of the sum total of all of these elements. But for histamines,
3: can't you just take an anti-histamine? Well, and then you're just really tired because you've got wine on top of an anti-histamine. <laughs> and you're like, well, that was a nice quarter of a glass of wine and I'm now out.
0: <laughs> it's easy yes. way to check out of a bad dinner party.
3: <laughs> yeah, sorry guys, I gotta go. <laughs> but um, yeah, there I'm gonna say that of all the places that research money flows, Research on wet red wine is usually at the bottom of the heap. <laughs> you know, there are a lot of other places that research needs to happen for people first.
1: <laughs> well, maybe it's good that in a sense we've started off with a caveat about mm-hmm. red wine and, and drinking. We do want people to drink responsibly. Mm-hmm. And by the way, we are taping this episode, and so we are not actually about to drink wine at 9 in the morning.
3: It is well. I don't know into... what your problem is, Lynn. <laughs> what in the world? <laughs> That's I mean this is these one of these is lower low alcohol enough that maybe it would be a good morning wine. I no. like that. Well, good for low alcohol is nice also for a
1: long period of time that you may be cooking mm-hmm. and eating Thanksgiving day goes on a
3: long time. It sure does. And so we were what we're doing today what I decided we should do one of the wines that I recommend at Thanksgiving that I've never brought in before is called um, Garnacha or Grenache. Same grape, Garnacha in Spanish, Grenache in French. And I thought what we'd do is one of the most uh, likely places that Grenache, Garnacha, Garnacha started, was born, was in the Aragon region of northeastern Spain. I took two wines, we're tasting two wines today, both from that Aragon region, and we are going to taste the differences because the winemaking and the um, heat, the alcohol in them are so different, even though they're from almost the same exact part of Spain. So we're gonna start with one that is called Boti, Botillo Rojo by a company called Bodegas Frontonio. It's a Garnacha 2020. We also have a, a difference in the um, Year. this is a 2020 and the second one is a 2019 but this one that we're starting with has an alcohol content of 13.5 percent the second one we're going to be trying is tres picos garnacha from Bors Borsayo um, Bodega Borsayo and this one has an alcohol content of 15 percent so
0: educate me a little bit because mm-hmm. I used to work in fine dining for quite a long time and I always had to do these wine tests and we'd have the psalms come in and the reps and everything and we went through the process and it was actually quite fun, but I just didn't have the palate for it. When I'm about to start sipping these wines and the difference between them, what should what's the flavor profile and everything I'm going for before I go into it?
3: Yeah, so you can see right now as we're looking at these wines, one's on the left, one's on the right, the one on the left, which is the um, Botijo Rojo. Is much lighter colored you can see through it I can actually see my writing on my piece of paper the other one is a much more dense dark color and you can't see through it so what that's telling me wherever these were grown the one on the right the darker colored one is from a warmer region it means the grape got riper it means that thin skin got thicker and so it is um, a warmer wine which means It generated more sugar when the Sun was beating down on it and so the higher the sugar the more alcohol the yeast can produce after they drink it or after they eat it (laughs) we're drinking it (laughs) Um, so the first one if you smell it in your glass you're going to smell a lot of cherry Um, you're gonna get a little bit of black fruit but mostly red fruit and possibly some spices and so as you and that also comes up if you swirl it. If you just sniff it and it hasn't been swirled, those molecules aren't lifted up into the into the body of the glass. But if, you can really get cherry on there.
1: If you're just joining us on the Mountain Life, we're having a conversation with Kirsten Fox. She is the headmistress of the Fox School of Wine for our annual Thanksgiving pre-day, I guess we should say, (laughs) about food and wine here on The Mountain Life. And we're talking about Garnacha. These are two red wines that we have in front of us, two bottles from the northeast area, Aragon, of Spain. We're
3: having a good time here. Well, I wanted to to talk about what kind of dinners and, and meals you would pair with each one of these. So let's start with the lighter one. What are you guys getting? You're getting... What are you tasting? I,
0: the cherries, I 100 percent get. I'm not picking up any of the spice. The
3: spices, okay, black pepper, that kind of thing on that. Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah, I can I can see black black pepper, and again, we're thinking about the garnacha being something more along the lines of a pinot noir, where it's a little bit lighter. It's not going to be uh, as full of tannins, so we can we can drink this with our turkey. And it'll be better with the turkey because the turkey doesn't have a lot of fat in it. However, it also holds up against our mashed potatoes filled with butter because it is still has some tannin. Did I get that right? You're
3: exactly right. That is exactly right. And so when you look at your glasses, you can already see that one is going to be more elegant, lighter. And I would say we also always talk about a vegetarian option for uh, Thanksgiving And the lighter one of these would be much more likely to be a vegetarian um, option. The other one on the right, now this one is the one that's been in a warmer region, riper. The grapes got more sweet, so those yeasts were able to eat more of that sugar. The alcohol content went up, which is why this is a 15% alcohol content. Um, But same exact grape from Aragon, and you'll notice that the flavors are much more dense and rich in your mouth. It's a little bit like having skim milk next to whole milk. Mm. And so the skim milk is easy on your palate. It goes away quickly. And yet the whole milk, actually, you'll taste it even a minute later. And that's much more like this Trace Picos which is the 15% alcohol one. Also, another huge difference in these two grapes, excuse me, in these two winemaking wineries, the Botijo Rojo did not use oak for the aging on that. They used, they put it in a cement tank. And the Tres Picos used oak. Mm. And so it's got some vanilla kind of things in it versus the simpler, more elegant, lighter um, of the two. Yeah, so those are, that's another big difference between the two. And these are about the same price. Um, they're not exactly the same price, but here in Utah, they're about $5 a or so. So they're not super different in terms of their pricing.
1: And of course, both of these wines can be found at Utah State, State liquor stores. Absolutely,
3: yes. Snow Creek, these are nice, easy drinking wines. It's too bad. Some of the ma- maintenance uh, of the inventory in the um, DABS system challenged the system for a while because it was based on volume. So you can imagine that wines that weren't being consumed as much started to be X'd out of the system. So um, I can't tell you exactly if these are at the Snow Creek Liquor Store, but um, they sh- they are here in northern Utah. I just got this in Salt Lake. And maybe we can put these in the, in the notes so that yes and and we'll post a,
1: a photo of them as well oh, perfect and I'm just going to say I I prefer the tres picos or maybe it's just the higher alcohol
3: <laughs> well <laughs> some of us depending on our family situations on Thanksgiving are definitely looking for that
1: <laughs> I'm kind of with Lynn as far as
0: the second one and I would call it you know you were calling it skim milk versus whole milk yes. and I would say for lack of a better word it's a, it's, a, it's a thicker feeling in the taste into it and so The thing I don't dislike or I dislike about it is that lingering on the tongue. And is that the tannins you're talking about? It almost feels like it's drying out my palate.
3: So, yes, you'll get that tannin on your tongue because we don't have food. We're not eating food right now. Um, So there's nothing to bind to. That tannin binds to other protein molecules, and it it has nothing right now. Where the other one's a little lighter, so a little bit better for a lighter meal. Um, Also, that high alcohol content increases the viscosity of the wine so it tastes thicker on your tongue and such that's why and that's and it also comes across as more complex and longer lasting which apparently isn't something that you're into david so well
0: if i'm only going for one glass i think that's might what mm. might be what i'm going for it's just that more bold powerful taste if you will that's going to last a little bit longer but i know i'm going to have one glass of it i can't go without speaking to my cocktail drinkers i.e myself because I'm not a huge wine guy, and so what what are some of the things that you would recommend that would be paired well with the dishes and the wine being served at the table for an individual who might be sipping on a cocktail while they're drinking the wine?
3: Are you asking me to do pairings with, uh, like, say, whiskey? and, and a, Yeah, maybe, a, yeah. Okay, so I would say I wouldn't be pairing an alcohol because it's got such strong flavors with the meal, the only place I'd pair it would be with the pies at the end where you've got the pecan pie and you could have a whiskey with that. I'm not as well versed on those spirit pairings, but I would say they just have such big personalities that they'll take over. That cocktail is great beforehand. You're, you're nibbling, you're all having fun, but I would be using a more nuanced alcoholic beverage at the dinner or not drink until pie. (laughs) Mm.
1: One of the things that I always enjoy at Thanksgiving when I'm cooking is maybe a glass of prosecco or a little a little bubbly to start the the event off
3: with. Is that is that okay?
1: I mean I know it's it's all all okay.
3: (laughs) Yeah, Prosecco's a good one to choose because it's got typically lower alcohol content than a sparkling wine from California or a champagne. Champagnes are closer, but Prosecco's tend to be a little bit lighter in terms of the alcohol, which you can drink longer than, which is kind of nice. I also thought I, I had a really good rosé the other day, and I was thinking that maybe, you know, a rosé often is at that good crossover wine as well, kind of like this low tannin red, a rosé has some of those flavors, but it's lighter, it's also chilled. So you've got a different flavor profile and it's very um, easy to pair with many, many foods. So I was thinking, what we ha- I know we do have them in the state available up here in Northern Utah is Belle Glow. Um, they do, and I cannot speak French. I studied Spanish in school, so this is really embarrassing in wine, but it's called Oye de Pendrix. <laughs> That is so oh, that's long. hard,
1: even if you do speak French. <laughs> it is
3: so bad, but it does mean eye of the partridge because it is this kind of coppery pink color and this bell Glow, but it is a rosé of Pinot Noir, and it's yeah. just lovely in the same rate, par- price range as these reds, but something that may be able to go from the cooking into the meal if you didn't want to switch.
0: That reminded me I had a sparkling red one time when I was in California, and it was fantastic. What about, is there any wines that you would not suggest pairing with a Thanksgiving meal?
3: I would not pair a Thanksgiving meal with, say, a Pinot Gris or a Pinot Grigio. Mm. They are too light. It will taste like you're just drinking water with the food. It needs to have some sort of body and personality to it. I also wouldn't go into, unless you are having, if you're having a smoked turkey, that's a whole different ball game. But if you're having a normal baked turkey, roasted turkey, I would not get into the really heavy wines like uh, Syrah, Petite Syrah, and a Tannit. Those are so big, and they've got so much tannin in them. You are just going to overwhelm those dishes at that point, unless it's smoked, in which mm. case if that turkey is smoked, it brings so much complexity to the meal that um, those wines would stand up to it. I just
1: learned that Garnacha and Tempranillo, Tempranillo uh-huh. make Rioja. Yes, that's it. This okay. is
3: one of the um, big grapes in Rioja. Also, Priorat. Also, the Rhone region of France. Um, that's this is the G in the GSMs. Um, so it's it's grown in Australia. It's a very uh, blending friendly wine. So it goes with a lot of grapes, um, other grapes, like the, it's just a good pal. And I would say you just have to know what you like. If you like, if your food is heavier, I'd go with the more heavy wines, just like the Trace Picos here is such a different wine than the Botijo Rojo. But that all depends on your own personality. Some people, I sit down with some of my friends and they throw down a Cabernet without any food, just because they love the Cab grape. And I that I don't do that. I typically pair the food to whatever I'm eating, or I go with a light red because that goes with anything, even nothing.
1: <laughs> good, anything or nothing. Mm-hmm. As far as
0: this is how uneducated I am in this world, when you say like Rioja, is it is that the region
3: we're talking about? It very good. That's a really good question, David, because. In the old world, France, Spain, Italy, Germany, that, we typically refer to the um, region, and that defines what is in the bottle, like Rioja, and that's going to be Garnacha and Tempranillo and... um, And those are the grapes. Those are the grapes, yes. And then yet, in the new world, New Zealand, South Africa, although that's one of the oldest ones, but still new to most people, California, United States, that, those areas refer to the varietal, so you're much more likely to see the Cabernet on the label. But even with that, they will blend. And in the United States, you have to have 75% of a one type of grape, and you can call it that type of grape, but you can have 25% other types of grapes in that and not have to call them out. So a Cabernet has to be a minimum of 75% Cabernet, but it can have other things in it, say in the U.S., so sometimes they're blending even without your knowing. But yeah, it's a hard, but generally, old world, they're referring to the area. New world, they're referring to the grapes, which helps us. You know, it's like, it's funny these days because what's ha- what we're seeing is many more wineries in the U.S. are blending grapes now. They're going with two or three grapes in their bottles, more like Europeans have done over the centuries. And... Europeans now are starting to add varietal names to their wines so that people understand what they are. Um, so it's this whole crossover of information that is helping to expand everybody's worlds of wine.
0: It seems smart because a lot of people, it feels like they're almost hiding that 25% of what they got going on, whether it's with for the recipe or they just don't want people to know what they're blending it with. But to, as a consumer to understand what type of combination you're getting so you can find that combination elsewhere is a a great thing that they're, I guess, introducing now.
3: It's interesting because uh, transparency in the industry has been uh, coming to the forefront because there's not a lot of transparency. So there's what you're talking about, which is this percentage of which grapes where, but also you talk about were there there, um, sulfites added? Were there other types of... um, Of acidification done was there sugar added I mean all these different things that have been just hidden they're not on the label and you have to do a whole bunch of research to figure that out but that with as with so many types of um, changes in our world right now that's becoming much more transparent and people are starting to see more of that information on labels. You'll see that.
1: Kirsten, we're just about out of time, but I wanted to see if we could get a white wine recommendation for Thanksgiving dinner from you and then also hear briefly what's going on with the Fox School of Wine. Oh, of course.
3: Well, I would always say a ver- a beautiful California or Australian chardonnay that has some oak aging will be beautiful with a Thanksgiving dinner because the oak aging on the chardonnay which sometimes is overwhelming if you're not having it with food but that oak aging adds that vanilla butterscotch and buttery type of taste in your mouth and there's so many things on the plate at thanksgiving with butter so i would say a really nice in your price range a nice chardonnay with um out of california often most often is oaked or out of Australia, most often is oat. I mean, there's certainly outliers. But anyway, so that's that's the white I would suggest, or that rosé I was talking about. Mm-hmm. And um, we are so excited. We're starting our recess on main classes. We do those on Friday nights, every Friday night. It's an hour and 15-minute class, and those are starting December 15th. And we offer five wines that are chosen on the subject that night that you'll find on the Chamber website or on our website. And then we do a sixth bottle that's split, of course, amongst the class. And that bottle is a blind tasting of one of the wines you just tried. Uh-huh. So it's a kind of a little competition.
1: to yeah, see if you can guess <laughs> Bragging which one it right. was. Oh, Which is so hard after you've tasted five. <laughs>
3: right. And where are these taking place? They'll be on Main Street. I don't know the exact location yet. Okay. We're just still working that out. but. They'll, they'll be on Main Street. They're on Friday nights, and they start December 15th, and of course, we take the Friday of Sundance off, but other than that, we are drinking wine on Main Street, and our website has updates at foxschoolofwine.com, plus you can sign up for a newsletter, and you'll get our weekly what's next, or we're sold out, you know, what's next after that. Well, so
1: much fun. And Kirsten Fox, headmistress of the Fox School of Wine, always so great to have you in for our annual talk of wine. It's really the only time, I promise, that we drink wine during the mountain life. Thanks, guys. Thanks so much. Thank you.